Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss macro developments and asset allocation with our UBS Chief Investment Office and our third-party asset manager partners. So today's conversation will cover the prospects for market returns in 2022, monetary policy, risk considerations, and of course, thoughts on how to think about positioning across a range of asset classes. So we're fortunate to have a couple of industry experts joining us to walk us through just that. Uh, They are Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Rick Reeder, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income, Head of the Fundamental Fixed Income Business, and Head of the Global Allocation Investment Team at BlackRock. So Jason, Rick, it's great to be back with you both. Thank you for dropping by, spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and very much looking forward to hearing your current thinking. Hey, Dan, it's great to be here. Absolutely. So as I alluded to, there is a lot we want to cover over the next 30 minutes or so. But uh, just to set the table, so to speak, it's worth noting that both BlackRock and UBS have a positive outlook on growth and risk asset returns for 2022. So with that in mind, uh, Rick, maybe we could begin with you. Can you speak to why you are constructive, especially with so much focus on the Fed and other central bank tightening right now, as well as other risks, whether it be inflation, geopolitics, Etc. What are your thoughts, Rick? Thanks for having me. The, uh, so I'd say a couple of things. You know, I think we are including today's number on inflation and, and by the way, Friday's number on employment. You know, I think you, when you step back and think about what's happening, you've got a Fed that is behind the curve. And, you know, the Fed, Fed has obviously should have started uh, certainly reducing QE, which, by the way, they're still doing today. Um, should have started reducing QE uh, a while ago. And now it's behind the curve. And now it's going to have to, it obviously has to move in terms of tightening and may have to move faster. But I think you have to think about why they, you know, oftentimes people focus on, uh, you know, that they're tightening as opposed to what is the reason why they're tightening. And the backdrop is you've actually got what is tremendously strong growth taking place. That has created an, an, an amazingly luxurious position for companies, i.e. they're able to pass through um, these uh the, the, uh, these price increases they're seeing in input costs, and, and quite frankly, they're keeping margins up, and you're seeing this through the earnings reports, that companies are, are doing quite well, and they've got operating leverage. I think people underestimate that uh, your costs, when you're running a business, some of your costs are variable and some are, some are fixed. And so if you, if, when you think about where we are today, you know, and uh, where growth continues to be strong, we think the consumer is in, is in solid shape, has delevered, has, uh, has built tremendous savings. And so at, at the core of how we think about where we are from a growth perspective, you've got a consumer that's in good shape. You've got a corporate sector that is in really good shape. And uh, you're seeing this in terms of spends on R&D and CapEx, and by the way, stock buybacks. And so you've got growth that's strong and, and a pricing power that is, that, is, that is obviously very strong when you look at, I mean, look at home furnishing. Uh, inflation you saw in today's in today's CPI report. So the backdrop, you know, you have to think about the Fed's tightening. Why are they tightening? A, they're behind the curve. B, the growth and the ability to price through is tremendous. So they're going to you have to get off of neutral. I'm sorry, you have to get to neutral. You have to get off of emergency conditions. You have to stop QE. They should start stop now. They should put a press release and stop. And then, and then they're going to have to try and uh, try and bring this in. I actually think they're going to get they're going to get a headwind um, 
in terms of inflation, some headwinds that affect that bring some of the inflation down, including some peaking of commodity prices, including some of the base effects kicking in, and uh, and including some of the supply chain alleviation you'll see over time. But just in the backdrop is good growth. And by the way, you know, if, you know it's really important. People underestimate China and China's impact on global growth. And there was some data that was released today in terms of social financing in China that was that was incredibly high. I.e., China is doing a tremendous amount to ease in, uh, and to create more growth in China. So the backdrop for growth is good. The backdrop for companies that can price through and have operating leverage is good. The, 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 the balance, though, and we can talk about asset allocation relative, is how much does the Fed feel like they are so far behind that they're going to have to move too aggressively. And then, you know, that, that, you know, that's part of why the markets are going to continue to be really volatile. Well, Rick, thank you for sharing those observations and considerations that support your positive outlook. Uh, Jason Dreho, to bring you into the conversation from the vantage point of the Chief Investment Office, what are you seeing out there that supports a positive outlook going forward here in 2022? You know, I would agree with much of what Rick just said regarding, you know, households, consumers, corporates. The fundamental strength of the economy is quite good. Uh, you know, that sometimes gets lost when on days like today when, the you know, the, the January CPI comes in at 7.5%. There's concerns about how much the Fed has to tighten to slow things down or, or cool inflation. So a lot of focus on the negatives or the, the challenges, and sometimes, it, you know, the strong fundamental story gets kind of discounted. Uh, when you think about that, I think that's, that's kind of, you know, what's really kind of driving ultimately our relatively constructive view for risk assets, you know, for this year. Uh, but Rick touched on a lot of kind of key points and questions in terms of, like, Fed being behind the curve, you know, this inflation dynamic. Uh, and there's a few things that, you know, Rick, I wanted to kind of unpack with you just to kind of get your, your thoughts. Maybe just starting on this kind of this growth dynamic. Um, I know you've written this recently in a, a presentation deck that I was looking through where, you know, you say we're in kind of now maybe in a regime of, of higher nominal GDP growth, certainly relative to like the last decade pre-pandemic where you know, GDP grew was around 2%, inflation was around 2%, so nominal was, you know, like 4%. Right now, we're clearly running higher than that. Last year, we were you know, probably 12% nominal. This year, we could be around you know, 10%. How long do you think we can sort of stay at this, you know, elevated sort of nominal GDP, you know, regime, you know, and at what level are we thinking about? Are you thinking of like, is it 5%? And it really sort of matter how much of it is growth, real growth versus inflation? It's a great question. So, I said, I think there's some, there is some, there's a longer runway today around, I still think this year you're going to have, will be solid, nominal GDP. Again, it's hard to see how much we'll get through the inflation part, but I still think you're going to operate in this, you know, in and around, in and around seven. And I I think what people underestimate is when you put this sort of monetary and fiscal stimulus in together, there is a tail to it, particularly when you take M2 up dramatically. And, um, you know, then what happens is as you start to slow it down, you're seeing this play out today. Velocity tends to pick up, and this is part of why I think the Fed's got to be really careful not, not to, uh, not to really stifle that growth in velocity. You're starting to see borrowing pick up. You see it in the CNI lending. You see it in some of the credit card data. Again, the, the system has has delevered dramatically because of all that fiscal and monetary stimulus. And now you're, you know, now the economy will still be solid, but clearly start to slow down from those from those in, incredible levels. Again, I think, that, by the way, I, <clears throat> there are a couple of things around this I think are really important. You know, wages are accelerating. You hear people in the media talk about, panicked about wages accelerating. Wages accelerating is really, is I would argue, is really good because you're doing a couple of things. You're closing the income gap, 
that, that needs to be closed and should be closed. There's been this spoils that have gone to capital versus labor over the years. You're equalizing that, and capital's doing just fine. You're equalizing capital versus, versus labor, and you're allowing disposable income to continue to be solid, despite the fact you have some near-term inflationary pressure. So I think the key to keep this economy going, and I think it will continue, it'll, it'll slow down from these accelerated levels, as you, as you suggested, but as long as you have the participation rate can increase, more people can enter the labor force, wages will stay sticky high. You know, if you get a natural reduction in some of this pricing pressure, then you could, you know, you could still have good nominal GDP, strong nominal GDP relative to what we had, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. And then, um, but then it's going to, you know, we'll continue to, you know, as you move further from the fiscal and monetary stimulus, some of the spending ability will start clearly gets exhausted. Um, but you know, I still think you have a bit of you certainly in 22, I would argue have a runway and then, and then I would argue you're going to start to slow down, but, uh, but for the near term, it's the prospects are pretty good and could be a bit longer. Um, then, uh, you know, again, assuming, assuming the fed doesn't come in and really, you know, start getting aggressive. And I, you know, saw some of Jim Bullard's comments recently, uh, a few minutes ago, you know, as long as they allow for, you know, they get off of emergency quickly and, and, um, and then, you know, but they don't feel like they've got to, got to break it. You know, this whole concept that we're too easy, then too, then, then too restrictive and trying to modulate it. I just think they should get off of, uh, get to neutral, and then the economy will moderate down. You know, I would say the U.S. economy is the most adaptive, flexible, globally uh, reactive, technologically oriented, innovative economy, and it will adjust. And, um, and again, I, I just don't think we should overdo policy. Um, you know, when post-pandemic, when we're moving more to a natural growth rate alongside what potential growth is in the demographic curve, that's probably too long-winded an answer. Sorry for that. No, but your last point about the U.S. economy being flexible, dynamic, I think sometimes this is kind of also lost. Um, you know, last fall I wrote a, a short blog called Rose-Colored Glasses where I listed out, you know, 10 factors I thought at the time were kind of positives when everyone was focused on stagflation. And some of them were the fact that, like, new business formation is, you know, 50% higher than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, you could say, you know, the job quits are a sign of the labor market, but it's also a sign of people willing to take more risks. You know, I think business dynamism is, is you know, there we have capital and, you know, kind of flowing to new adventures. So, like, when I think of that, this is sort of a positive scenario, but it also ties into, you know, the, the potential for normal growth being higher because, you know, if you have to have a soft landing, or that's the goal for the Fed is to have a soft landing, you want to land at a higher level, like of say 5% normal GDP growth. And that kind of is predicated on, can we actually get potential growth a little bit higher? And I think that's, you know, at least for a couple of years, I think that's that's a possibility. But it also, I guess the challenge to that, in, in I see people talking about the markets is, you know, where are we in the cycle? How long can the cycle last? From a structural perspective, there there is kind of view that, you know, we had this very long cycle, record length expansion, but it was a kind of very, very steady, low growth, low inflation, low volatility. Clearly not the case now where we have, you know, volatile inflation, volatile growth, volatile policy. Do you think structurally given sort of at these levels that this is just the nature of the kind of the cycle? It's going to run, you know, hotter, but probably shorter policy will at some point have to probably tighten to cool things down. Uh, and so the idea that we can kind of soft land and stay at a soft landing for like years as opposed to maybe two or three years. That's the reality. Like, how would you kind of, how do you kind of calibrate those two different you know, possibilities? So, Jay, I'm going to say one thing about what you said, which I couldn't agree with anymore. I mean, you think about how the economy, how the economy moved through a pandemic and how you shifted, whether it was sales online or Zoom 
or, or you know, just the way commerce shifted across the board and how you had the economy operate really well through an pandemic, companies operate really well. It's pretty extraordinary. And I think people underestimate how flexible and adaptive the economy is, like you, like you were saying. And, then, and by the way, you build onto that. I think people underestimate. I mean, the two things to me that are most important to investing, and I, in you know, post-pandemic, if you're going to move into a more normalized uh, place, it's demographics and, and technology, and quite frankly, now climate has entered that as well. But, but largely, uh, technology and demographics. I mean, you look at the investment taking place in artificial intelligence, and cloud, and software, and you read every. I mean, I mean, literally, virtually. Every company, what they're trying to do, make their business more efficient. By the way, more efficient means you bring down price, so you operate more efficiently, so you're cost competitive. You do, you know, M and A to create synergies within your business, but you're you're going to see more and more of that. So listen, I, you know, one man's opinion, and then I say something really controversial to you, I can. I really think the Fed should get the funds rate to one and a half. You know, we could debate one and a half to two. What is, you know, where is potential growth? And I think they should leave it there. And I think so. You tell the world, assuming you know we're going to we're going to learn a lot over the next couple of quarters. But I don't think we have to have these hotter. You know, like I say, pandemic is extraordinary, and uh, I don't think you have to necessarily have you know these really hot cycles. And I don't think that that central banking needs to constantly tweak where we are because the economy will do it on itself. In fact, I think it's distracting, and I think it can I think it can actually negatively impact economic and financial investment. So listen, I think now we're in a position that clearly you need to have restricted policy because we're running we're running hot. And but you know there's some there's some legs to the growth we talked about in, in employment and a lot of this is really healthy. And technology development is really healthy, you know, broadly to the economy. And um, so I don't think we have to have these, you know, quick hot cycles, you know, away from some geopolitical event, a pandemic, et cetera. So you said, you know, the Fed needs to get to or should get to neutral as soon as possible. And none of us know what that is. The Fed doesn't know what that is. So, you know, let's let's say it's they're saying it's two and a half percent. I think at a minimum, they probably need to get to like, you know, one and a half percent, you know, before or potentially by year end. But that's one thing what they should do versus what they will actually do. Do you think and I haven't heard like what your comment about what Boulder would have said today that for all the Fed's talk recently about sort of being hawkish, you know, kind of you know concerned about inflation, that they will still maybe err on the side of being a little cautious. They don't want to, you know, kill this recovery. Uh, or at what point would you think of the threat? Like they reach the threshold, like well, now they have to kind of tighten and tighten into restrictive territory. So it's like, what's what's you know, you're, you're kind of trying to read Jay Powell's mind. What do you think they're kind of you know, thinking how they want this to play out this year? So I, mean, I you know, I've learned over the years, probably some of the hard way, is that uh, it uh, it's less important what I think they should do as opposed to what they do. <laughs> And it's not about being right; it's it's generating return. I think in the near term, I think that I think the, the reaction function today, there's so much political pressure. I think there's so much probably internal pressure from the staffers at the Fed that I think that I think the initial reaction has got to be okay. Now we have to deal with this inflation paradigm. So while I I do think as you get into deeper into the spring into the summer. Um, you know, some of the data, by the way, we're seeing some of this now. We're seeing some inventory building, some inventory builds in retail. Um, we've seen some of the industrial production numbers that are coming off a little bit. You know, you're going to have, the Fed will have an easier window, you know, in somewhere between two months and six months to say, okay, we need to preserve the recovery. I just think in the near term, if it were me, I would, I would probably 
you know, get to 100 basis points, fat, or like you say, get to one and a half percent. But I, I try and describe to the to the system of the markets, the economy, that we're going to get there quickly. But that doesn't mean we need to go much further until we see the data that that requires us to move further. My sense, though, is what they're going to do is they're going to they're going to address the inflation problem head on, and that's part of why I think the markets, you know, are going to have some volatility here for a uh, for a bit of time because. You know, it's going to be, you know, if they if they do that, you know, the concept of how you land the plane and can you land the plane softly, particularly in an economy that that starts to exhibit some mixed um, data, it's still pretty good, but slower than we've been operating at. That is a tricky thing for markets to digest. Yeah, when I look at some forecasters are saying seven hikes and others are you know, still at kind of three or four in the market, you know, as of this morning, it was before the inflation number, I think it was around a little over five hikes this year. I sort of maybe distinguish it is, is the Fed's policy sort of endogenous or exogenous? And by that, I mean, if they just feel like they need to fight inflation, they're just going to keep hiking every time, regardless of what's going on with growth. If it's endogenous, you know, they hike maybe three times, get to the middle of the year, see where the trends are, and then really become outcome dependent and can take a more gradual path. That's, that's how I might think about it. But I guess the question sort of that I kind of wonder about is like the effectiveness of monetary policy. And it, you know, you wrote this, uh, I guess, in your recent post about like, you know, Fed policy acts with a long and variable lag, right? The textbook story that you know, we would have learned in school was nine to 12 months after rate hikes, that's when you see the, the wheels are going to slow down in, in economic activity. But in this environment where the economy has become more financialized, with just much more debt over the past 40 years, a lot more focus on financial conditions and how they can translate pretty quickly into in economic behavior, do you think that transmission mechanism from the Fed raising rates or faster balance sheet runoff happens faster, and they think it maybe runs faster, and therefore they they feel like they can it'll be a little more fine tuning than they would have maybe in the past, where they just have to hike because there is this lag. So I, I mean, I do believe that a lot of what happens does does happen with this with these long and variable lags, and that that they should, you know, see that see those adjustments. That being said, I I do think they need to. You know, come off of extremes, and I think they're you know waited too long to come off with some of these uh, some of these extremes. But if you think about what the, what is catalyzing these higher rates of inflation, and what is the the Fed's potential influence on it? I mean, we look through the data today, and you see home furnishings with this explosive growth. You know, there there are some specific reasons. No doubt, there's demand. But there's also specific reasons in terms of input availability, et cetera, that's driving that. That Fed can't influence that. You look at the rent dynamics. If, 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 uh, let's just say for argument's sake, we were in China where you control, where you control all the policy. You know, if you controlled all the monetary fiscal as in, in, uh, centralized in one leader, you know, you wouldn't, you would cap rents through fiscal. You would create some dynamic where you, where there was, there was a uh, prohibition on increasing rent too quickly because we have an inventory problem in the country today. Fed can't do that. And, and you think about how blunt the tools that the Fed has to try and, well, we'll move interest rates and hope we're going to improve rent. It, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. So part of why I just think you don't need to, you shouldn't be at the extremes. You shouldn't try and tweak things. That are just outside of your control. I mean, you think about the secondary effects of, you know, there's been a huge growth of people retiring, and so you think about financial assets appreciated because you put so much financial stimulus in, so a lot of people retire, and so you know, leave the labor force. You know, I do think in a, in a good employment market, those people come back into the labor force, and you actually create, um, you know, what is a better, more durable e- economy. So. That's part of why I don't believe in this tweaking 
And, uh, you know, if you, if when you grow M2, you grow the Fed's balance sheet to nine trillion, that has an impact. When you take, you know, when you keep interest rates at zero for, I would argue, too long, I think, I think at the extremes, you know, where is this constant tweaking? Uh, I don't think makes a lot of sense because, you know, rent, you know, you know, rental pressure is not, is not influenced by the Fed, albeit, albeit moderately through the demand function. Given the picture that's been painted, I'm curious, maybe we can spend a few moments here on asset allocation. I want to hear your thoughts there, Rick. And as Jason cited as part of one of your recent works, uh, you do say that a diminished version of 2021 returns across asset classes is a reasonable baseline for 2022. So what specifically do you like? What don't you like, Rick? So I just thought I'm 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 holding to my view that I think equities are going to have a positive return on the year, and we're we are well off where we closed 2021. And you you know I think says on TV I think you get there because these earnings numbers which you can play out are substantial, and I think you can get you know I think you can get close to 15 percent earnings growth, but you rate you raise the discount rate maybe compress multiple a bit. I still think you can get you know low you know high single digit type of returns. In uh, in equities in a in a year like this. That being said, if you said to me, "What do you think the returns for equities will be in the next two months?" when we have no idea how, how aggressive the Fed's going to go, I think you got to be really conservative. And so, you know, we're running our portfolios with a pretty conservative equity position, and I think that's the right place for today. And then when the Fed, you know, comes off the boil into the second and third quarter, I think equities are going to do well. Other than that, you know, I think it's hard to take an interest rate risk. So I'm not a big fan of taking a lot of interest rate risk today. And uh, simultaneously, you know, I do like there are parts of the market that are, you know, the loan market makes a lot of sense for us, um, you know, versus high yield bonds, which I think have gotten, you know, are more interest rate sensitive. Uh, and, and quite frankly, yields are not that attractive anymore. Yeah, some of the investment grade credit, both, both in the U.S. and Europe, I like quite a bit to go up in quality. Now the yields you're getting because of the, the backup and the risk-free rate are attractive. So we've been doing more up in quality, more into investment grade. Um, you know, we love you know doing securitized financing, real estate, commercial real estate. Uh, we like we like quite a bit. And you know, it's um, um, so you know that those are the places in fixed income. The one place that we are chomping at the bit is you know, but you need to wait for the Fed pivot i.e. to pivot to a more um, neutral stance is a market. But I think that's also probably too early. So our stance today is just you know, be cautious for a bit, run a high level of cash, you know, hold some equities in the portfolio, but be ready to grow it. And then, you know, I like, quite frankly, buying, you know, doing a lot of one-year, two-year financing in commercial resi to try and uh, try and create some carry in the portfolio. You know, I think commodities and real estate – Will continue to be well supported, you know, the extent that your remit is beyond uh, just the bond market, stock market, and obviously alternatives. I think will continue to perform. Thank you, Rick. Uh, Jason, from the vantage point at the Chief Investment Office, I know we caught up on asset allocation a bit earlier this week on the snapshot, but can you refresh us of your thinking and maybe some thoughts on how to put cash on the sidelines to work in this environment? Sure. So I, you know, I think I, we share kind of the, the view that Rick laid out regarding equities, uh, you know, in terms of more upside you know, this year, with some choppiness that we've you know, seen in the past couple of weeks, probably continuing for a little while longer. You know, you never know exactly when the market sentiment is going to turn. But I think you know, the two questions that are, they're kind of overhanging, I think people's willingness to take more risk right now are, you know, 
if the Fed is tightening into a slowing growth, can the economy handle that? Can it be resilient? I think, you know, there's, there's uncertainty about that. And then with these inflation numbers being where they are, you know, how much will inflation moderate and how much will it take the Fed to tighten aggressively for inflation numbers to come down? So I think until kind of our macro thesis sort of plays out, that you know, growth is going to be still quite strong this year. Inflation will come down, you know, to something close to like 3% by year end until people kind of become comfortable with that and feel like this is an environment where equities can still can perform well. I think you're going to see more kind of sideways movements. But that sort of change in narrative could start to happen really within a few months because I think we'll get evidence that you know growth in the U.S. sort of reaccelerated after a little bit of hit from Omicron, that higher rates aren't really impacting it because the fundamental strength is so strong, and then inflation numbers should come down. So I think we're already sort of sort of positioning more on a six to nine month view that that's going to kind of go higher. Uh, so that way I agree with Rick. I guess the probably noticeable thing where we're, we're positioned a little bit differently is, is on investment grade corporate credit. Uh, and some of it comes down to you know when you have to like buy equities, you've got to sell something. And, you know, kind of my basic view is that among the kind of the capital structure of corporate America, I'd rather own equities for the upside, especially in an environment to start the year where we thought rates were going to rise and spreads could widen, which is kind of played out at least for, for investment grade. But a question, I guess I go back to you, Rick, on, on maybe credit in general. There's kind of growing concerns. There's certainly chatter that, you know, as, as other central banks, including the Fed, start to shrink their balance sheets, they were buying either a lot of in some cases, corporate debt or buying government bonds that force people, you know, portfolio rebalancing to buy corporate credit. You take that bid away. Will it cause sort of discrete, you know, kind of liquidity shocks or, or funding you know, issues in those credit markets? And if you also get concerned about later cycle, typically spreads widen before equities kind of sell off. So you seem pretty benign on investment grade right now and maybe credit in general. How much do you worry about that kind of risk from a more of a technical perspective, maybe in the near term and then sort of fundamental kind of later on down the line? Yeah, that's totally fair. I'd, so, excuse <coughs> me, I'd say a, a couple of things. You know, this is a weird, you know, place to start from and from a, from a credit point of view in that companies are long a lot. Of, I mean, some of them have tremendous amounts of cash. Their free cash flow generation is, is pretty extraordinary. And they've termed, they've termed tremendous amounts of their debt out. So I find a credit cycle is going to be really hard to see for a while. I find, I mean, if you're an investment-grade company, uh, it's both. By the way, you know, I actually like a lot of the credit in Europe, the investment credit in Europe as well. Well, it's hard to see how you can default, save some form of fraud. Um, but by the way, to your point, it doesn't. It doesn't mean spreads can't widen. But uh, but the credit cycle should be more benign. The reason why I made the point about about investment grade is, you know, we can manage our duration. You know, we could run an investment grade portfolio and then you know, and then manage our duration around because it, it tends to be sincere. To interest rate movement, so we could just neutralize the the interest rate effect, and then hold hold the spread. There's a really big factor at play that I think when yields move higher is the is the demand from pension funds and life insurance companies. When all of a sudden you can match your liability stream by you know pension funds in this country are mostly funded now. Corporate pensions are mostly funded, so you functionally defuse your liability stream by buying investment grade credit and um, and you know, not having to worry about variability of your of your uh, pension funding for the corporate for the company, so that natural bid. And by the way, by the way, the, the, that bid comes in from Asia and other other parts of the world as well. So there's just this organic demand for investor grade credit that's so much bigger than the high yield market that I think keeps spreads from from moving up. By the way, your point: if if we're in risk off and equities have a hard time, spreads will widen. And uh, and I think your point's well taken. That spread that spreads a wide. Our only point around in our fixed income portfolios, by the way, in our global allocation, 
where I can take more equity risk. I don't have, uh, I don't really have any investor grade. But in fixed income portfolios, you're trying to go up in quality, manager duration, and then, you know, and then you know, try and clip some yield. I mean, so now for the first time, like you can buy three year investment grade, depending on, you know, where it is, how much risk you take, you know, in the high twos to 3%. And that's pretty good. Just that, and you know, your break evens on holding that, you know, as long as you believe defaults stay low, your break evens reasonably attractive. And uh, you had to go, like you said, you know, Fed was buying credit and and or supporting, I should say, the investor grade market. And, you know, now when you get those yields to three percent, like why do I need high yield? And um, so that, that's why we're doing it mostly in our fixed income funds. But your your point's very well taken there. I know we're beginning to come to the end of our time together. 30 minutes goes quick. I had a feeling it would for this conversation because we have heard a lot of fascinating insights, uh, actionable takeaways from our guests, Rick Reeder, Jason Dreho. So in the way of final thoughts, takeaways, what we'll do, Jason, we'll allow Rick the final word. So I'll go to you first, Jason, for any wrapping commentary you'd like to leave us with. Sure. I guess a couple of points I would make is, you know, right now we're probably a bit of in the eye of the storm regarding inflation and certainly the Fed and other central bank hawkishness. Uh, the story should get better as we go throughout the year. So while there's a lot of focus on the Fed, I think it's also important to focus on the fundamentals, which is sort of the point we began with, that they're really quite strong. And even, you know, to Rick's comments about, you know, on the credit side, even if there's some technical challenges they could face near term, uh, you know, the fundamental story for corporate America is in a good position so that I think that kind of caps some of the upside risk. You add that all up, you know, I think the regime we're in right now is just a different regime that we've been in for the past decade where I think equities still go higher. The, you know, rates will probably continue to rise, but in a way that is sort of endogenous to the strength of the economy. Uh, and that's going to allow equities to kind of keep moving and risk assets in general to keep moving higher. But the, the playbook that worked for a number of years of kind of this lower for longer and kind of growth stocks being the startup performers, I think that playbook is, is probably passed. Things that you know have lagged on a relative basis over the past decade, not just in this year, but in kind of the next couple of years, that's the kind of stuff you want to own. Whether it is it you know continues to be value stocks in the U.S. commodities, or increasingly looking outside of the U.S. You know, for equities. So that's the kind of the big picture takeaway that I would leave people with right now. And I agree with a lot of what Jason said there. I mean, first of all, I've, I've learned that QE is more fun than QT as an investor. So hopefully, we come back to that at some point, at some point in the future. Although I'm, I'm not sure I'm really rooting for that. The, um, listen, I think, I think this is an environment that you gotta be patient. And I think, I think there are places that, you know, we're running, you know, cash in portfolios. You've got to be cautious for a period of time. And then you're going to set up for what I think is going to be a pretty good opportunity across markets. I think we got to get to the other side. I think you got to see a couple of months at least of data and then try and, you know, find assets that, you know, can, um, you know, will hold up. And I think Jason described a lot of them that will hold up in this environment. And, um, you know, to, to manage the risk. I mean, like I said, you know, part of what we like to do is some of the short term financing. It gives us really good carry and then try to neutralize our interest rate exposure. Listen, I still think, you know, near, you, know, you think about QE for three years, you had, if you run a 60 40 portfolio, you had tremendous returns in 1920, even 21, where equity drove at fixed income didn't do much. In 22, that's going to be pretty hard. And so the, the question is, you know, can you keep it, you know, close to the pin? in the interim to set up for what I think could be a decent investment environment once uh, once you get a bit of this repricing. So that's what we're trying to do in portfolios and uh, you know to keep it close to the close to the pen and um, you know keep returns stable. 
Well, Rick, Jason, thank you very much for your time. You covered a lot of ground for our listeners today. There is, of course, plenty here we can follow up on. So uh, perhaps down the line a bit, looking forward to getting back on the mic together to hearing your thinking at that point. But thank you again for your time and for your guidance today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Rick, for this great conversation. Look forward to next time. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, sir. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 